the church of God is supposed to be united and diverse. United together in God, in our one common calling as Christians, yet as one body, able to diversely express our faith with different gifts and talents and skills. United and diverse. This is what God's eternal church looks like. The one that will be seen at the end of history. The one that comprises every generation of God's people. The one from every tribe and nation and language. The one that will be seen in heaven when all of God's people come together around Jesus. Unified and diverse. And it's not hard to understand why God would want this to be the case. Because unity and diversity point to God himself. You see, our beautiful Trinitarian God is one and three at the same time. One God, three persons. So perfectly united as to be one, yet distinctly three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. So three and one. Try three, unity, one, try unity, trinity. That's our God. So the local gathering of the church, like Christ Church here in Gladesville, is supposed to display that character of unity and diversity. Take a Sunday service, for example. Here's a picture from pre-lockdown times. I asked our Director of Magnification, Mike, this week, for an estimate of how many people are involved in the normal running of church, and he estimated about 35 So in a usual week, our senior minister, Dave, opens up the Word of God and we gather with him to be united around the Bible. But in order for that to happen, more than 35 people need to give their talents and energy and time and resources to make that happen. From welcomers to servers to tech team to children's leaders to readers to those in hospitality, those who do prayers and those who co-host. You know, there's a great number of people who are all involved together for the work of service. So when we have that character of unity and diversity, we are the church we can be and should be under God. For the first listeners of the letters to the Ephesians, this was an incredibly important thing for them to grasp. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. So if you were a local who grew up there, you would not have grown up believing in the Old Testament God. And you wouldn't have particularly wanted to hang out with people of Jewish descent. Yet in Jesus, a new people group is formed. One to which all people are invited into, both Jew and Gentile. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians has been very carefully reminding them all about the things that God has been doing to bring them together into one. As we look back over our time in Ephesians, we see that in chapter 1, God talks about God's grand design and what God has done for the Ephesian church, that he's given them every spiritual blessing. And then in the end of the chapter, they were to be reminded uh, to remember with thanksgiving, like the Apostle Paul, all the things that God has done for them in their prayers. At the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about what God has done in them. 
He has saved them by grace. They were dead in their transgressions and sins, and now they've been made alive in Christ. And at the end of chapter 2, we saw that this grace has been extended to all people. So God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. They have one identity now in Christ. And last week in chapter 3, we saw uh, God's, uh, the church is God's masterpiece that he had intended since before the beginning of the world. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians has built this beautiful picture in the lead up to chapter 4. And now he says to the church that uh, has been built by God that they now need to live like it. And so in verses 1 to 6 tonight, we see that they are to be united. In verses 7 to 13, we see that in that unity, they are to show their diversity. And in verses 14 to 16, they are to be united and show diversity so they can stand strong and build together. And as we read this letter tonight, we're going to be encouraged as a church to know uh, God better and to learn the same lessons for what it means for us to be a church as well. It'd be so great if you could have open Ephesians chapter 4 in front of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you can click the link underneath the display window and it'll take you to the Bible Gateway site that'll uh, have Ephesians chapter 4 on there. It'd be so great if you can have it open so you can read as we go through the passage together. Now let me pray and we'll get into it. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful joy it is to have your word. And we ask, Father, that tonight you would still our minds and ready our hearts that we might see your glory and understand your purposes for your church. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, first of all, we see unity in the church. Have a look with me at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And the Apostle Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord because he's gone to foreign lands to proclaim the truth and he's been arrested for it. Such is the importance of this mission. It shows us just how much God wants people from all the nations to be part of his church. So the gospel is that important. And so the Apostle Paul says to the church, you're now going to have to live up to what God has done in you. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now here, like in the rest of the New Testament, calling is salvation language. It's the calling to come to God, to confess your sins and to receive forgiveness. That's the moment when a person receives God's amazing grace and believes that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has forgiven them. If you like, a couple of weeks ago, I spent a whole sermon from Ephesians chapter 2 talking about how Christians are saved by grace. If you'd like to go back and revisit that sermon where we talk about how wonderful God's grace is and we even invite people to pray a prayer at the end and receive the great offer that God gives, there's a link just under the display window and you can uh, watch that sermon, maybe after you've listened to this one uh, as well. I invite you to do that and let us know uh, if there's anything we can help you with there as well. 
Well, the, um, the Christians in this church are recent converts, particularly, if I can say, the Gentiles who are part of the Ephesian culture. They're all recent Christians. That is the calling that they have received. And what brings Christians uh, all over the world together and Christians together within a local church is that they are united in their calling in Christ. So the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers here are supposed to lean into each other. It's not surprising that Paul picks up on the sort of character that the church is going to have to need and have if they're going to be in in order for them to be unified. So in verse 2, Paul says they need to be humble. They need to be gentle, patient and loving. Now each of these qualities could have a sermon of their own. But the common feature of all of them is to say, you first. That is, you before me. You first. And they all look like how Jesus lived and how he did his ministry among the Jews and the Gentiles. If I was to pick up on one of those characteristics, humble has got to be a very interesting choice to be first on the list. Now this quality would have been very difficult, particularly for the Gentile Christians in the church, because their culture would have seen humility as something that was shameful and weak. It would have been like saying, I'm worthless, or I'm less than you are. It certainly wouldn't have been a description that a Gentile would have described themselves as. The Apostle Paul says that the call of Jesus is greater than culture. If culture says, live like this, and Jesus says, live like that, then for the Apostle Paul, Jesus is the one that you follow. Humility is a characteristic of being a Christian. And when you read right through the New Testament a bit more, you realize that the Gentiles probably actually misunderstood what humility was all about. Recently, an American pastor, Rick Warren, borrowing a little bit from C.S. Lewis, wants to find humility not as thinking less of yourself, but of thinking of yourself less. If you like, it's looking across the room and saying to someone else, let me come towards you. And in a culture where, at best, Jews and Gentiles ignored each other, and at worst, they were enemies, then living lives worthy of their shared calling meant looking towards each other as they followed God. They were to be united. Now, in our culture, one of the things we do as Australians when we don't get along with someone is we just tend to kind of ignore them and keep our distance, don't we? And we justify it like, oh, I don't hate them. I just don't get along with them very much. So I don't really have anything to do with them. They don't have anything to do with me. It's all cool, though. Well, in a church context, the Apostle Paul is saying, that isn't good enough. He's saying, You're called for more. It's not about passively drifting apart, but actively coming together as Christians who have a unity in Christ. And that's what he says here in verse 3. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now that make every effort verb is an active 
energy expending, you will be tired kind of word. See, God unites us. But now we need to be active in promoting unity among us. In verse 1, Paul reminded them that he was a prisoner for the Lord. And so that meant they would have been in physical bonds to the people beside him. And he uses that as an example for the Christian church, that they are to see themselves in spiritual bonds to the people around them as well. They've been given the bond of peace. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and has brought peace. He's given his spirit to both Jew and Gentile so that they are united and they can now live as God's united people. And they must make every effort to do so. Now, that's only going to be possible if they, if they keep their eyes fixed on the one who unites them. When I was growing up, in my, I went to my grandparents' house and they had a grandfather clock. You know one of those big old clocks that ticks and chimes and makes all kinds of noises? Well, the mechanism that powered that grandfather clock was a big pendulum with a weight on the end. It's, got a, it's fixed at the top and has a, a range of movement at the bottom. And I wonder if that's a little bit like the Christian church, where our immovable anchor point is our Trinitarian God. Yet Christians and churches can have a range of practices along the Christian trajectory that honours Him. I mean, things like the wearing of robes, or the lighting of candles, or the frequency of communion, or the baptism of children, or the use of the prayer book, or the translation of the Bible that gets used, or how the church is governed and structured. It's possible to do godly things in different ways. But the only way we're going to see the unity across all of these things if we, is if we keep our eyes focused on the anchor point. I mean, if we lose sight of what unites us, it's very easy to disconnect and only see the differences and perhaps not to see any kind of unity between Christians and churches. Well, the true Christian church finds its unity in God. And my experience in being in churches for more than two decades is that the more that church members fix their eyes on God together, then the closer they come in fellowship and love. They're just drawn together. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants for the Ephesian church. And he gives them the creed of verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. It's a very unifying part of the scripture. I mean, did you notice the Trinity language there? One Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. Did you notice the unity of the Bible in this section? One hope, one faith, one baptism. And did you see the unity of the church? They are to be one body. God's all-time forever church, ultimately which will be seen in heaven, of which all genuine Christians are a part. So casting our eyes up to God, listening to His Word, and growing towards each other in love and peace, we can see 
the unity of our time together. So I wonder, is it possible to be a member of Christ Church and not agree 100% on things that happen around here at our church? Of course it is. As long as we're not talking about something that unhinges the anchor point. Now, maybe that's you. Maybe there's something in our church you're like, oh, I'm not sure I agree with that particular practice. If that was you, what do you do with that? Well, let me encourage you to strongly consider remaining in fellowship here, even when you disagree on a small or maybe non-essential part of church fellowship. Then instead you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then in humility and gentleness, with patience and forbearing love, you talk about the Scriptures with other people. And you serve alongside of people who might have a slightly different interpretation or understanding from you. And who knows? Maybe you'll come to change what you thought about that particular issue. Or maybe you'll come to live in loving peace. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're completely united. We just happen to disagree on this one particular issue. In either case, you'll be living out the true unity that God desires. Because not everybody is the same. And within a church, there will be diversity. And this brings us to our second point. That there is diversity within unity. Have a look with me at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. One of the biggest joys, I reckon, of being part of a church is that you're brought together with a bunch of different people that you would never have chosen for yourself. I mean, five years ago, I probably didn't know anyone here at EC, and yet now we're family. In, the, in Ephesus, the Jews would never have chosen the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would never have chosen the Jews. But God knows what he's doing, and he's the one who builds his church. And so he apportions grace. Now, the grace there in uh, uh, verse 7 is not the saving grace in chapter 2, which all believers get in equal measure. What's being looked at here is the grace of being given skills or gifts or talents that people can use to grow the church. And Jesus is able to give these gifts because of the position of authority that he currently has. In the next verses, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, which was our first reading, where King David praises his triumphant God who defeats his enemies and comes into Jerusalem in victory. And the Apostle Paul makes the link between the victory of God in David's times and the work of Jesus. So if you have a look with me at those three quoted lines in verse 8, after his saving work on earth at the cross and the resurrection, first line, he, that's Jesus, ascends to heaven. That's what Christians believe, that after his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven. So we're talking about Jesus here. And the second line, he literally has captured the captives. It's a very strange line. He's captured the captives. What does that mean? Who are the captives? Well, when you know the gospel, you know the captives were us. 
because we were the ones who were enslaved to sin, the world, and the devil. But by his death and resurrection, Jesus has busted the jail and he's freed us and he leads us back to God. In ancient times, prisoners of war who had been rescued were given a place of honour in the king's victory parade. It kind of showed how great the king really was. And that's what's in view here. Jesus has ascended back to heaven and we are part of his victory parade. And so having received the spoils of war, that third line, he, that's Jesus, gave gifts to his people. So it's worth reflecting just for a moment that if you're good at something and you recognize, hang on, I'm, this is easy or I'm good at this in a way that other people around me may not be. If you're good at something, then you could be thankful to God for apportioning you grace as one of his people. And we can use those things in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love for the sake of others so that we can serve them and love them. And so when you look around at our church family, you see the enormous variety of the gifts that God has given. Some people are good at preaching. Some are good at music. Some understand tech stuff. Some are good at organizing. Some are natural encouragers. Some can build things. Some are prayerful. Some are creative. Some are just, you know, servant-hearted people. Paul gives a bigger list in 1 Corinthians and also in the book of Romans as well. But these gifts are on display in our church and in every church family. So even if we don't have the gifts ourselves, we can end up praising God for the gifts he's given to other people. It's joyful that we can all serve together using what has been given to us by God to be united together and give glory to him. And so Paul points out that those who have gifts in handling the word of God as leaders in the church have a very important role. Have a look at verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now you can be assured I'll be asking Dave and Mandy all about the apostles and the prophets, and whether they still exist today in 2021 in the Sermon Seasonings podcast tomorrow. But what we do know is, of course, we have pastors and teachers with us as well. And the role of the minister in the church is not to do the work of the church. Do you see that in verse 11? It's not the minister's role to do the work. Rather, their role is by the careful preaching of the word to equip the church to use their gifts to do the work themselves. So if we come back to that pendulum diagram, the role of the pastor and the teacher is not here at the top. That's where Christ is. The role, rather, is here, within the circle, one of the people who are part of God's family, using their gifts to point the whole church family towards God. So if you like, it's, it's all hands on deck. Our church family is at its best when every member is looking for ways to serve one another. Now, how long do we do that for? Verse 13, until we reach heaven. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, in heaven, our unity will be perfect. That was God's great design. In heaven, our faith will become sight. Our knowledge will become complete. And we will go from being children and adolescents to being mature, to being the very people in the church that Christ wanted us to be all along. It's an amazing picture and one that will just continue to grow before our eyes when we have the spirit of unity within our hearts, opening and expanding our vision to what God has in store. Now that long-term vision helps fuel us for the short-term road ahead. And this brings us to our last point for tonight, the result of our unity. And in verses 14 to 16, we see two big points. Being united means that it will help guard us against the false teaching of the world. And in verses 15 and 16, we will build up the church of God. So firstly, the church needs to be active together in fighting against heresy and false teaching. The Jew and the Gentile in the Ephesian church needed to look out for each other so that they didn't fall away. You see, in the church, it is our jobs together to make sure that we hold firm to the faith, the one hope, the one faith, the one baptism that we have in God. And this means that we have to recognize that not everything that calls itself Christian is in fact Christian. There's a difference between a matter of difference within the Christian faith and something which actually changes the gospel. Let's go back to that pendulum diagram again. If you like, it's the difference between finding yourself somewhere on the trajectory of the pendulum swinging versus something that just sits outside of what we might believe as Christians. I mean, there's a reason why the New Testament so often urges Christians to guard their doctrine closely and to watch out for false teachers and faulty doctrines. You see, false teachers can not only stop people from hearing the Word of God, they can also take people who are believers and lead them astray. And frankly, false teachers can come from anywhere, including from even within our own tradition. So, we are all in it together. It's not Dave Mears' job at Christchurch to hold us together. He equips us to know the unity that we have in Christ. And so we can live out the calling together that we have received. This means it's our job to make sure that no one in our church falls away. No one in our church is led astray. It's our job to love each other and to care for each other. Now we know that the world is going to bombard us with little gospels that will try and challenge our values or change our thinking or try and distort our priorities. And the world will talk about Jesus from time to time, but it won't be the full picture of the glorious Jesus of the Bible. At various times, we have to admit, and particularly in times like we find ourselves in, it's going to be very tempting to listen to more of the world and to less of God as well. It was an old fable about a man who owned a donkey and decided one day that it would be cheaper to supplement the donkey's feed with wood shavings because it was just cheaper. And for a time, everything looked fine. 
And so the man increased the percentage of wood shavings in the food, kept on going until finally, inevitably, one day the donkey died because it was just eating wood shavings. That can't be us with our faith. And we are responsible to each other to make sure that none of us falls away. We have a bond of peace that God has given to us in Christ to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And that's especially important in a time when COVID has just stuffed everything up. I mean, we can't see each other. We can't meet together. It's so easy for people right now to fall through the cracks. But now is the time where we must make every effort. It's a job for a mature and united church. Well, in verses 15 and 16, Paul pivots to something more positive. Because the result of a unified church is that we will build and grow as well. And he spells it out in this beautiful image of a human body when it comes to the church. In this image, Christ is the head. And the members of the church are the body. And just like a champion athlete, perhaps at the Olympics, when the whole body is working in unison, using our gifts and diversity to do the things that are needed, well, then the body grows stronger and grows faster as well. At Christ Church, every one of us is needed to contribute to the building of God's church. And we're needed to build not just here, but in places beyond Gladesville as well. Every member of our church matters. Every member of our church has a role to play. And so in the passages to come, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us more about what that looks like. And we can look forward to that in the weeks to come. Well, last week, David Mears rightly described God's church as a masterpiece. And there's a reason why people go out of their way to see the masterpiece. Because there's something incredible beyond what's just in front of you. God's church is a masterpiece. And it's the testimony to the world that God is still working and still active even in 2021. And when our church demonstrates the unity of the Spirit and the diversity of the grace that Christ has apportioned us, and when we give glory to the one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all and over all, then we are the church that God wants us to be, unified and diverse. Amen.